he'd run out of food and fresh water. And no food for the whole day, no water for the whole day, bring out some snow from the downstairs. I just live on the ninth floor. I had to run down on the first floor, bring out the snow from the outside, bring it inside, warm it up, boil it up, then cool it, then drink. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Back Chat uh, with Mike Rouse and me, Jim Gould. And on this uh, Back Chat this morning, we're going to be talking about uh, mental well-being during uh, isolation and <clears throat> uh, during quarantine. Uh, just before I introduce uh, the two guests that we have uh, for this part of the programme, um, a couple of uh, emails from listeners which I'd like to read out uh, just, uh, just briefly. Uh, this one from Colin says... Um, uh, I read a great article in the SCMP about the taxi drivers who signed up to transport COVID patients to hospital and doctor's clinics. Yes, they are getting paid a bit more than normal, but uh, what great lengths they have gone to providing for their families and also carrying out this vital service for the public's benefit. When COVID is over, I think the government should do something to officially recognise the taxi driver's contribution. Probably the best COVID initiative the government has come up with. Taxi drivers, well done. That from uh, Colin. Um, save the other one till later, because uh, now we're going to welcome... Uh, Dr. Judith Blaine, who's a researcher and consultant in psychology, and Dr. Hannah Reedy, CEO of uh, Mind Hong Kong, that's the uh, mental health charity. Um, good morning to you both. Uh, perhaps, perhaps uh, Dr. Blaine, uh, if we can start with you, because uh, you, you published a scientific paper on the impact of uh, mandatory quarantine uh, last year. Um, so um, um, just remind us of the, you know, the, the essential findings of your paper. Yeah, so in essence, um, I conducted this because there was a lot of anecdotal evidence out there um, of the real sort of isolation, the fear, the anxiety, depression that came from quarantine. Um, and then, so I decided that this, the best way to do this was to take a scientific approach. So it was a small scale study and it was qualitative in, in nature. But the main findings that came out was that definitely the um, consequences of mandatory quarantine were quite extreme with the negative outcomes of um, feelings of confinement, anger, depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and also the thing that came out quite clearly was that if people were given a, a more openness and transparency in their um, decision making, if they were told, uh, had a little bit of inclusivity in making the decisions, reasonableness, uh, responsiveness, accountability, these could mitigate the mental health effects. Um, and to rely on people's altruistic nature would definitely uh, minimize the effect. So in other words, making it um, you choose how to quarantine, where to quarantine, as opposed to it being enforced. Uh, because we, we've all, many people have seen uh, the uh, video that emerged um, last week of uh, that poor d uh, distressed person at the Penny's Bay uh, isolation facilities uh, who left her room and was basically uh, involved in an altercation with, uh, with staff there. Um, do you think uh, it's partly you know, the nature of such facilities that... Uh, um, you know, uh, uh, relatively Spartan and uh, and uniform, which uh, which helps to lead to 
um, you know, people's unhappy mental state? Yeah, absolutely. And also in places like uh, the government quarantines, like Penny's Bay, and people are there as close contacts. They are not there in uh, isolate. They're not isolated because they're ill. They're isolated because they are close contacts. And again, if uh, the, if you rely on people to do the thing for the for the community, I mean, Hong Kong people are generally have a high civic compliance, so they will do the right thing by people. And if they find that, I mean, you've you've read stories that have been posted in the South China Morning Post that people have slept on the rooftops to um, safeguard their families if they felt that they were close contacts or if they were even positive. But mind you, positive, they'd go to hospital. So, yeah, I think, again, it's the uh, sense of um, self-efficacy that has been undermined in people and this sort of autonomy. And once you take that away, it really does put people more on the edge. They feel helpless, hopeless, and uh, there's a lot of anger. Should we carry on? Uh, effectively locking up close contacts? Well, I think we're running out of space for that. Uh, yes, we are. <laughs> it doesn't seem to shift official thinking uh, very quickly. One thing I've talked about, maybe you also and Dr. Reedy, um, I've noticed people isolating themselves now a lot. That is, they're not going out, they're very reluctant even to do basic things, they sort of they rely on one member of the family to do the shopping and the others just stay home um people are becoming more and more afraid hmm. uh, this seems to be a great deal of general reservation and unhappiness people why am i waking up in the morning why am i getting out of bed well why am i doing anything yeah absolutely and i think what we've come to is a sort of um, emotional exhaustion really it's been going on for two years and there's this whole sense of when is this going to end and you do you hear of people who are not able to even get up in the morning to they are so depressed so on edge um but again i think that you know this is the big thing this what are we going to do to mitigate the mental health issues this is what we've got to look at now uh D dr reedy good morning to you yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, and I, I agree, actually, yes, there is there is a lot of what we've, we're dubbing pandemic fatigue in Hong Kong at the moment. Um, I think that with this, this new wave coming in, um, people were already at a relatively low ebb of resilience. Um, if you think of it about being kind of pushed down and then bobbing back up again, people had already had to do that quite a few times. So now we're seeing, you know, um, a big sweep of cases and restrictions and people are um, experiencing stronger mental health complaints than maybe they were beforehand. So yeah, I totally agree with Judith on that. I think we, we got together with the first year. We knew the first year it's just a virus, but um, we've, got, we've got no vaccine. But the second year we, we had vaccine and we, we kept thinking that it would bring relief I guess the slow rate of vaccination hasn't brought relief. And this latest wave, 50,000, and we're regarding 30-odd thousand as, a, as progress, um, people just looking at each other and saying, well, it was all for nothing. All the social distancing, all the sacrifices, what was it for? Yeah, I, I agree. And, I, you know, you go back to this idea of people fearful. I think one of the big things I've found is that people are fearful not of the actual virus itself anymore. It's a fear of being separated from their family members, fear of being put in um, these quarantine places. Oh, yes. 
I've had this remark directly. Uh, you know, I'm not scared of the virus, but I'm terrified of Benny's Bay. Mm. And just sorry to, to keep jumping in, but this study that I did was a year ago. Mm. Here we are. The data collection was literally um, a year ago, mm. and we are still here. The mm. consequences are still the same and the same thing is going on and I have you know I've, obviously I've reached out to um, the government and the directors of health and all of that but we still seem to be struggling with mental health that was uh, so yeah like you say that data collection was around a year ago that was around about the, the start of the vaccination program um, um, I mean we're now up to a point where 90% of the population have had at least one uh, one jab. I mean, do you think that is, that that has an effect on on people's mental state? I mean, do people now feel more more confident that they're not going to get seriously ill? I mean, all, also we know that the current Omicron uh, virus, although it's uh, far more transmissible, uh, appears to be um, a lot less virulent. Yeah. Um, I think that it's sorry. Okay. No, you carry on. <laughs> um, I think that the um, I think that the anxieties that people are facing are coming in waves, just like the virus itself. So I think that there was a point where people started to get vaccinated more more frequently, and we did see the figures rise. And then it felt like people had a bit more control over the situation. And I think that it was being able to action something that you felt would ameliorate the situation in some way um, and I think that we probably saw a bit of respite from the sort of the stress and the anxiety at that point but then as Omicron has come in and is spreading very quickly and there are lots of measures in place in order to try and prevent that transmission some of that control feels like it's been taken away again and, and humans you know myself everyone loves to have control over a situation so when you feel out of it when you've got a lot of stuff outside of your locus of control especially for example when you're in quarantine um, it can feel very very difficult Right. So, yeah. so, so if so, if you are in quarantine, um, what, what steps can you take uh, to mitigate the effects? Uh, you know, the 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 anxiety, the the frustration, and so on. Um, Doctor Reedy. Sure. Well, I mean, I think that there's a few things. There's remembering that you're not alone, even though it feels like you're on your own, and reaching out to your support networks, whether they be your friends and your family and and the people you care for, or whether they be professional support networks. Um, these could be ones that are arranged by, by healthcare providers, but also there are informal support networks. And I know Judith and, and I, I think, both have been frequenters on the, the Facebook groups and social media groups that do provide that support. Um, so remembering you're not alone is key. Um, remembering it's temporary. And I know from, from reading Judith's paper that sometimes the unknown nature of how long you would be in quarantine or how long this situation would last can be really quite difficult for people's mental health. And I, I see that a lot with the people I speak to at Mind Hong Kong as well. But remembering that this isn't forever can be very, very helpful and counting down days, noticing the passage of time. Um, and then finally, it is about trying to bring stuff back into your locus of control. So there are lots of things when you're either in home isolation or whether you're in a quarantine center that you can't control, but there are things that you can. So maintaining as much of a regular routine as you can, trying to walk around and keep stepping as much as you want to, if you have choice over the food that you're eating, choose when you're eating it, what you're eating. Choose how you do things and just start to bring some things back into your control and that will help you to feel a little bit better. Well, is, can the government help in this process at all and how? Well, I think if we go back a few steps, um, you know, th there's been pandemics before and there have been ethical frameworks for decision making that have been out there and this is sort of part of the research that I did 
And I think one of the things that perhaps we could look at and how to mitigate is give people a sense, again, of self-efficacy. Uh, allow people to feel included in the decision-making. Be open, transparent. Uh, this, let the decisions that are based on evidence and values that are agreed upon by all, you know, all stakeholders. Responsiveness, accountability again. I think that is, you know, if we can adopt this ethical framework in decision making, um, be consistent in the messages. And yes, it is unpredictable, but try and have some sort of sense of predictability in this state of uncertainty. Would it help if we had a clear path out of all of these controls and sacrifices? Absolutely, but the virus has, you know, it's mutated, the waves come, waves go, so there isn't a certainty, really. But if we, uh, there was a lot of talk, if we had, if we reached 90% uh, vaccination rate or 95% vaccination rate, then such a thing can be eased. Um, or if we... Yeah, that's happened before, you know, when even with the travellers coming in, we had, if you reached this threshold on you know you had this immunity when you were tested then we you only need to um quarantine for seven days within a week it had gone up to three weeks yes so yeah definitely consistency and having some clear the cut from three weeks to two weeks was very popular but with omicron people are talking about a a, a rate of three to five days for, for the disease to emerge yeah, um, I mean, even with Delta, uh, the average was six days. Could we cut to seven? Well, seven plus seven, if this is what people are, are looking towards, I think. And why are we still locking up people who arrive at all? They, they're actually coming, they're less diseased than the native population now. Yeah. Uh, that, 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 well, that, that's a policy decision, uh, Mike, isn't it? Yes. So, um, but but, but uh, 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 Hannah Reedy, did you want to come in? say you were asking what we could maybe be looking at to try and improve the experience of quarantine and just to add to it I think that actually just realizing and accepting that, that quarantine may be a necessity but it does have a mental health impact um, and it's okay to realize that you know it is difficult to be isolated in anywhere or in any situation and um, so actually just realizing the ramifications of that and therefore supporting people both people who are individuals who maybe haven't experienced a mental health problem before by making sure there's lots of preventative strategies in place for example the routines regular checks as much social interaction as possible but also identifying people who who wish to identify themselves that maybe have experienced mental health problems before because this is going to be a situation where they're really quite vulnerable um, and i think it's very important that we do try and protect everybody um, and everyone's mental health but also making sure that people who might be a little bit more vulnerable do you get that support that they need and access to professionals yeah i would agree and i think that i don't think there's any um screening as you go into quarantine whether you have any mental health issues there um and there are hotlines of course to call um but i think that if i don't know if you agree with me dr Edie, but uh, this quarantine support group on social media seems to have been the place of support for a lot of people that's a sort of a feeling of a virtual society, isn't it? Which is incredibly helpful and valuable, and I absolutely commend everything that, that those groups do. Um, but it isn't professional support. And I think what we've seen, uh, uh, Mind Hong Kong, ourselves, and various other places included, trying to set up small-scale support for people.
people. Um, but actually, at the moment, because of this wave and the number of people in this situation, um, there, there's not enough people there for the number of people who need it. We were speaking to a, a neuroscientist on our, our new Saturday afternoon programme uh, called All Being Well, um, and who, who was saying that for, for people who are feeling low, uh, if you try to find a word that describes your exact state of mind, it can actually help. It can, it can help you to, to deal with it and uh, lift you up a bit. Um, do, do, do either of you know anything about that? It seems it sounds, sounds like an, sounds like an interesting technique. Yeah. yeah, I think it would it would be a way of really honing in on how you're feeling. And we regularly, myself as a clinician, but also Mind Hong Kong as a charity, in a lot of our advice around mental well-being, we say to check in with yourself and work out how you are feeling. Because when we are in a state of stress, um, ironically, often checking in our, in our mental health is the first thing to go. We don't notice how we're feeling. We slip into poor mental health without realizing because we're preoccupied by other things. So spending a moment just focusing on how you're feeling and naming it um, can really, really help to contain it. Um, that's how, you know, that's how infants contain their feelings because their parents explain how they're feeling to them verbally. And rather than there being a big mass of emotions that we don't understand as a child, we can label it and we can know what to do. So it's the same thing as an adult. If you can label how you're feeling and take a moment to check in, you can start to find a solution out of it. Okay. Because there are things that help with general well-being, but there are also definitely things that help specifically with specific emotions. So what are the signs if your mental health is beginning to slip? I think it, um, Judith, do you mind if I take this? No, please do. Jumped in. <laughs> um, I think um, with the signs of sort of the, the pandemic anxiety and distress that we're seeing, I think it's noticing that your mind is really quite preoccupied by stressful events, like how, how is the pandemic affecting our lives, how are, how are things going to change. Um, noticing you're very sensitive towards news or information regarding the situation. So something that people might notice is that if they are reading the news right now, they are focusing in a lot more on Hong Kong and the situation here and not actually paying much attention to say what's happening in Ukraine. Whereas if you speak to people around the world, they will all be focusing in on Ukraine. And that is nothing to do with our population being selfish or anything like that. It's just that we're being very hypersensitive to what's going on on our own um, country right now. Um, having trouble staying focused and concentrating on things, so either work or something you're trying to do to enjoy yourself, sleep problems, um, often people find it really difficult to fall asleep or they might feel quite restless. Um, feeling physical symptoms, so shallow breathing, noticing your heart rate getting a bit faster, you might feel jittery, and anything else that you notice that you sort of feel when you're starting to feel anxious. Your stomach might right. feel uncomfortable. Um, and then finally, just checking social media or news sources all the time. Um, it's something that we do when we're anxious because we're trying to find confirmation of, of what's going on. Um, so if you know if you're doing that more than you ever were, then it might be time to just check in on yourself as well. Some of us are still quite bouncy, despite the cumulative effect of all these months of, of being beaten down by new statistics and new rules. But we do see, or we can see, friends and relatives um, going the other way. That they're, they're losing the spark that they had. What, what can we do to help them? Judith, do you have anything? Because I'm very uh, happy to answer that. No, you carry um, on. you the clinical. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think in terms of helping friends and relatives, um, it's about being realistic but reassuring. So not just saying everything's okay, because that can come across as a bit invalidating or that you're not listening. But 
helping them just like you would help yourself. So helping them to find the things they can control, reminding them that things will change, maybe helping them just take a few breaths and, and just ground themselves again um, and realize that actually you know, they are going to be okay, that things can move forward. Helping them access support if they need um, through either charities such as Mind or professionals or through extended family. Um, but then also it's really important to take care of yourself. So even if you are one of the people who's feeling bouncy, if you are looking after lots of people, you need to look after yourself as well. When the plane is going down, you have to put your own um, air oxygen supply on first. So you need to keep checking in on yourself, even if at this moment you're feeling okay. Can I just add one thing to that as well? Um, there's this whole concept of com um, comparative misery. So a lot of time people, because of what's going on in Ukraine and people are worse off in the world, they feel ashamed of actually saying that they're feeling miserable because they are in a better situation than others. But it's your reality. And if it's horrible for you, it's horrible for you. So to compare, you know, to say we're lucky, and we are lucky, don't get me wrong, but it's you're missing funerals, you're missing... Um, milestones, you're missing family. That's very real for people and it's absolutely okay to feel it. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, another uh, aspect of, of all this uh, is uh, I guess um, the effect on children because of course um, um, th there's no face-to-face -face schooling at the moment uh, and, and this has been going on, on and off. We've been dealing with this for the past two years. Um, uh, Judith Blaine, are, are you concerned about, uh, about the effect of everything that's happening on the, the younger generation? Oh, hugely. I mean, last year in January, I've actually posted an article um, supporting your ch child's social and emotional development during COVID, never thinking that we were going to still be out of school. And yeah, for uh, school closures and, and all that definitely has an impact on the child's social and emotional development, let alone the academics. And it seems to be even more pronounced the younger the ch child is. Well, yeah, where are you going to get your sort of social interaction? You know, you learn all of these things in the playground, um, at school, learning to share, learning to conflict resolution, um, all of that. Yes, all the things that we tend to ignore if life is going on normally. Yeah. And they're suddenly just not present at all. <coughs> Children don't see each other's expressions yeah. because their faces are covered. Yes. And you don't yeah. see... Sometimes mum can convey happiness or uh, unhappiness towards the child's behavior just with an expression mm. doesn't have to be a word but if there's no expression uh, what's happening and yeah. it's not it's not all in the eyes either isn't it it's no. like this it's like this the, the the shape that your mouth forms uh, yep. you know in certain responses and reactions to things yeah, yeah. Well, there have been quite a few studies that um, have been conducted in the UK, Japan, China, Italy and Spain, Pakistan, all over the world. And the main concern is that the negative psychosocial effects for the children can be detected months and years later. Yes, I think one of the things that I've repeatedly written in the newspaper is that we, we're paying for the time that we've, we've bought time but we've bought time, the currency that we used was our children's future. Mm. Um, uh, Do Dr. Reedy, uh, have, have you, um, is Mind Hong Kong having to deal with a, a lot of uh, distressed uh, families at the moment? We're just seeing a, an increase in distress across the board. Um, certainly we're trying to respond to um, the youth 
population by creating more resources for them at the moment. Um, and I think there's been a lot of uncertainty in the youth population as well due to the, the, the academic term times changing. Um, so trying to kind of help them help them through that, as well as the concerns that they have around, um, as you say, going out and socialising and spending time with their friends, which is very crucial as you're developing as a young person, but also keeping safe. And a lot of people um, do live in those multi-generational households and therefore want to be extremely protective of their older relatives. Um, so, yes, we are, we are certainly seeing quite a lot of concerns. Can we do anything when it's all over, so to speak, to help people recover from this psychology? Myself and all go out to play. <laughs> yeah, I think it will be. It will take time, and I think that the world is um, still, you know, dealing with this pandemic over. And I think that as we do move um, both internationally and within Hong Kong into a space where things start to feel a bit safer again for everyone, it will take some time for those anxiety levels to come down. The only thing that can be done to help feel, make people feel safe to come together again will be very, very helpful. Okay. Well, that's, uh, that, that's great. Thank you both very much for speaking to us uh, on the programme this morning. Uh, that was uh, Dr Hannah Reedy, CEO of uh, Mind Hong Kong. That's uh, a mental health charity here. And also to Dr Judith Blaine, researcher and consultant in psychology. Thank you very much for uh, both of you for taking part uh, in back chat this morning. And uh, just before we bring uh, this morning's programme to a close, um, another email from a uh, uh, listener, uh, CW. Uh, he's objecting to um, suggestions by the um, legislator Michael Teen. Uh, it says, um, uh, I listened to Michael Teen on Sunday night on Pearl Magazine on his proposal for a full lockdown for nine days and two rounds of testing. We have to be very careful not to not to listen to this harebrained idea. Uh, what experience does he have in infection control? He's in the fashion industry. Uh, yes, gets lots of airtime, which he, which he's very good at getting. We cannot be experimenting with unproven ideas. Why has he failed? Uh, to get the elderly vaccinated. He has had nearly two years to achieve that. Singapore did a wonderful job of getting their elderly vaccinated. The person we should be listening to is Dr Benjamin Cowling from Hong Kong U, who's an expert in this area and seems to have uh, good ideas for handling COVID and especially the Omicron strain. We need to get out of this mess and follow a proven strategy that other countries like Singapore have done. Um, uh, thanks for that, uh, CW. Um, Michael Teen, of course, is... Uh, is pretty much uh, of a regular on uh, bank chat and uh, and uh, maybe he'll get the opportunity to uh, respond to that in the near future yes um, get him on air again yes that's right we'll uh, we'll uh, do our best to try and make that happen um uh, thanks very much to our listeners to everyone who wrote in uh, thanks to you mike always bouncy yes <laughs> i'm be beginning to feel pretty lonely in the bouncy in the bouncy area OK, a quick look uh, at the weather before we go to the news summary and morning brew. Um, it's going to be uh, mainly cloudy, um, cool in the morning. Uh, hang on a sec, I'm just going to do this. Uh, mainly cloudy, cool in the morning and um, becoming fine and dry in the afternoon. Top temperature around uh, 22 degrees, uh, moderate to fresh northerly winds. The outlook mainly fine in the next couple of days. Cool in the mornings, uh, dry during the daytimes. Temperature differences between day and night relatively large. Misty in the morning and at night in the latter part of the week. It's currently 19 degrees, humidity 86%. Fight the virus, stay vigilant. 
If you think you have a higher risk of COVID-19 exposure or experience discomfort, you can collect specimen bottles for free testing from designated public clinics. Meanwhile, the government will arrange free testing for targeted groups. To minimize the risk of community transmission, we should take the initiative to get tested. Together, we must fight the virus. Stay vigilant. Visit coronavirus.gov.hk for details. The new summary with Andrew Shirovsky. Anyone who tests positive for COVID can now call a new hotline so isolation can be arranged. The hotline for people with mild to no symptoms was announced yesterday by the Security Secretary, Chris Tang. Mr. Tang said priority would be given to those with unsuitable living conditions for self-isolation. Anyone who tests positive can send a WhatsApp message to 52331833. District offices will hand out rapid test kits to about 80,000 residents, cleaners and property management staff at a number of buildings in Sha Tin, Southern District, Kuntong and Yunlong after relatively high viral loads of COVID were found in sewage samples there. And the head of the U.N.'s nuclear watchdog says he's extremely concerned about reported communication difficulties between the Ukrainian regulator and nuclear sites under Russian control. Rafael Grossi said Ukrainian authorities were having trouble contacting staff at the Zaporizhia nuclear plant, the biggest in the country. Those are the headlines. We'll have more on these and other stories at 10 o'clock. Stand by for the brew. Uh, sociology prof from the University of Set and Costume Design, great interpreter of Beethoven. And by also shy, quiet, and retiring doggy council co founder of Rockefeller Records. Hello. This is really for adults, it's not really for kids. Good morning. Yeah, well, it's fun, you know. Hello. Decipher what's happening behind the myth. Good morning. In depth interviews and also observations. Absolutely no way. On your radio and live online, this is The Morning Brew. Good morning to you and welcome to Monday here on The Morning Brew. Back at you. So, Robbie McRobbie is going to bring you this week's rugby bits at 10.10 this morning. And at 10.40, thank you, we're off to New York for our weekly date with correspondent, author and columnist Tracy Kwan. Then... Different author, New York Times best-selling author Paul French returns to read the first of a new four-part adaptation for us of his Post magazine article, The Lady from Hong Kong, the best Hollywood movie of the 1940s never made. Well, this one's a tale of a woman who caught herself set a gin and she arrived in San Francisco from Hong Kong in January 1939 with several dozen tins of opium stashed in her luggage. Her story... And why she took the risk to smuggle so much dope into America is the story of the lady from Hong Kong. You can listen to the other parts this time, every morning, this week until Thursday. Also going to be on Facebook Live. And at 12.10, we're Vietnam-bound to catch up with Bureau Chief at Large, Neil Runciman. Join him as well on Facebook Live.